Good morning, everyone. Super good to see you. Thank you so much, Nick and the team, for leading us in worship. Can we give them a hand for, for leading us in worship this morning? We are so grateful when people use their gifts around here to serve the Lord, and, and it benefits so many of us, doesn't it? So uh, listen, today we're going to jump into 2 Timothy chapter 3, picking up in verse 6, right where Brett left off last week, and we're going to uh, refer to that quite a bit today. So if you have a copy of the scriptures, why don't you join us there, and while you do, um, I want to have just a word of prayer again, just over, over the Lord's uh, just guardianship of this time. Um, we just ask the Lord to use his word to speak to us um, at a heart level, okay? So let's pray. Father, thank you so much for uh, the gathering of the saints. We're grateful that we get to gather together to worship you, to seek you through your word, and to collectively uh, just humble ourselves before you, to collectively uh, just submit our lives, our desires, um, everything about us to you for a moment, just let you speak into that. So we pray that you, more than anything today, that it would be your word that would speak, and more than anything today, that we would grow in being just completely wowed and in awe of, of you and your truth above all things. So God, uh, lead us in that effort this morning, and God, would you use your Holy Spirit to speak to us uh, richly now, in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, uh, <clears throat> recently, Kenzie and I like to watch um, a lot of stand-up comedy. Of course, you got to pick and choose because there's a lot of filth out there. Uh, but every once in a while, you come across a good one. There's this guy that I heard recently um, talking, and he described his coastal destination uh, to, um, uh, to an area that he didn't know at the time was infested by crabs. It was crab season. Right? I don't know what crab season is. I've never been around a place that's filled with crabs. From, from what he had to say, it was gross and infested. And I didn't know that crabs can scale walls. Did you? I mean, you would make sense, like bug things like that. In, they're not insects, I guess. But, you know, they have a weird ability to do really weird things. And so apparently uh, the whole place is, is filled with crabs. And he even got to his second-story hotel room. And as he uh, walked into his room, the room was filled with crabs. They had snuck in through, through the crack uh, under his door, apparently. And even when he got that under control, uh, which I think this is hilarious, he said, on the outside of, of the windows were crabs looking at him and tapping on the glass with their, with their claws, like wanting to get in. It's just a funny scenario, but it's exactly what I thought. It's the first thing I thought of when I thought of verse 6 here, that from among this whole world of crabs, there's going to be some who worm their way in. Pick a critter, crabs, worms, whatever it is, the idea is the same. They have a special ability to sneak into places where they're really not welcome. And so in a sense, I think chapter 3 here is a kind of crab season of a spiritual nature. And so what I want to do is read verses 1 through 5 just for contextual purposes so you kind of uh, can remember everything Brett talked about last week and then use that to feed into our passage for today. So verses 1 through 5, this is what it says. But know this, hard times will come in the last days. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, proud, demeaning, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, without love for what is good, traitors, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to the form of godliness but denying its power, to which Paul says, avoid these people. Avoid these people. This is crab season. It's the last days. 
which basically means it's, it, the closer that the world gets to the Lord's return, the more crabby things are going to get as people trade their love for God in for love of self, love of pleasure, and things through which, as we see here, chaos completely dominates. After all, this issue is an issue of love, is it not? I mean, last week, Brett explained clearly and powerfully the progressive nature of sin and chaos when we trade our love for God and for love of self. So if you haven't heard that sermon, you need to go back and listen to that. It is so, uh, such a prevalent message. And we see this rampant in our culture around us, don't we? And for many of us evangelicals, it's kind of a nuisance, but it's really, it really shouldn't be surprising, right? Crabs have always been on the beaches, that shouldn't surprise us. But where it feels more of a nuisance, where it gets more threatening, is as this progression of self-love and the following chaos is not contained to the beaches of society, but it starts to move in. It moves in on the town. It moves in on the church. Even to the point of, of, of sneaking through the cracks of your own homes, tapping on the windows of your own heart. And it does this through people. It does this through the influence and teaching of crabby, wormy people and the things that they teach and the things that they promote. That's where we're heading today. Feels a little heavy, uh, but don't worry, it is. So uh, we're going to look at it uh, together, but I want to invite Shelby McConaughey up, uh, who's going to read our passage, or Ruth Hodge, I should say. So I missed that somehow. Um, sorry, Ruth Peelman, I should say. I'm really putting my foot in it, aren't I? Uh, so come on up. Um, and read this passage for us. And if you are here, we're going to be in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 6 through 9. Um, and would you stand for the reading of God's word this morning? Thanks, Ruth Peelman. <laughs> okay. For among them are those who worm their way into households and deceive gullible women, overwhelmed by sins and led astray by a variety of passions, always learning and never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janez and Jambres resisted Moses, so these also resist the truth. They are men who are corrupt in mind and worthless in regard to the faith, but they will not make further progress, for their foolishness will be clear to all, as was the foolishness of Janez and Jambres. Awesome. Thank you so much. You can have a seat. Keep in mind, Janice and Jambres, we're going to look at this example of those who resist truth a little later on, and so um, we're going to call them J&J &J probably, because I'm still not 100% sure on how to uh, pronounce that, and Andy uh, helped, me that with this, uh, helped me with that this morning, so J&J. &J. Okay, so looking at your scriptures, what I want to do through verses 6 through 9 is really just pick apart three encouragements for you and myself as we resist the sway of the trends around us. Not just so we can just be more spiritual and more, more lofty in our own truth, but that we might actually uh, um, maintain what is solid truth so that other people might see solid truth through the way that we live and the way we point people to Jesus. After all, that's the point. But still, to do this, we've got to guard ourselves from the infestation of false teaching that seeks to compromise your first and initial love, which is for God and for God's design. So the first encouragement I want to offer comes from verse 6. Uh, looking at verse 6 with me, it says, For among them are those who worm their way into households. We'll stop there. The first thing I want to encourage us with is to sim simply to do this, to, to close the cracks, right? To, to, to shut up the cracks in our homes, in our hearts, in our experience, so that things don't have the chance to worm their way in, right? We've got to close the cracks. We've got to take very seriously the things that we surround our lives with. 
Okay, so let's talk about this for a second. And I'll, I want to start by just acknowledging what we all know, right? And, and every psychologist and, and sociologist will, uh, will attest to this, that what we consume as children and as adults, what we consume dramatically impacts who we become. We see this, obviously, when you're raising kids in your home, that they start to just look and sound and uh, take on the same mannerisms as, as those who, who, who they are raised by, right? But for some reason, when we turn 18, for, we, 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 we stop thinking um, that the things around us have any effect on us anymore because we're our own person now, right? That's not true. The things you listen to, the people you read, the people you watch, the podcasts you take in, uh, those who you hang out with, those who you follow, all of these things have potential to bear massive weight on our spiritual health, our spiritual beliefs, and our worldviews. And the scriptures speak to this. Proverbs chapter 13, verse 20, we're going to be in Proverbs a lot today, says, the one who walks with the wise will become wise, but a companion of fools will suffer harm, Right? If you want to be a wise person, hang out with wise people. You want to be stupid, hang out with stupid people. You want to be reckless, hang out with reckless people. You want to be angry, listen to angry things, right? Hang out with angry people. Proverbs 22, verses 24 through 25 says, Don't make friends with an angry person, and don't be a companion of a hot-tempered one, or you will learn his ways and entangle yourself in a snare. The things you consume in your life, they will often bear impact on the person you are actually becoming. Now, we need to make some clarifying statements here because, of course, we all exist in this world and have to with people who aren't going to share our values. You're going to have to go to work and play on teams and, and go to school and, and do other things with people who don't think or act or talk like you talk. You're going to have to coexist. This is normal and, dare I say, even good. After all, how can you be light if you're never in dark places? How can you actually extend the hope of the gospel if you're never around anybody who needs it, right? We can't just, you know, wrap ourselves up in tiny little Christian bubbles and, and refuse to just live out missionally that way. But there is a gigantic difference between coexisting and companionship, right? Now, in the Proverbs, the word used is friend. It's companion, companionship. In the Hebrew, this literally means a keeper of the sheep or shepherd. So those who you become companions with are those you are letting feed you. They're the ones leading you to pasture so that you can feed, right? They are your shepherds, and you feed off of each other, and it bears weight on who you are becoming. Your companions are not just your occasional hangouts, your work buddies. They are those who actually truly have influence on your life. Those who you rely on and trust in, especially when it comes to the deeper issues in life. But again, this is a very dangerous relationship if the pasture that they are bringing you to is toxic. If the ground is dry and the grass is withered and covered in chemicals, right? If that's what you are being fed, then that's not a good companionship. And it's having impact, more impact than you probably care to acknowledge. Now, it's interesting in our day and age that many have become companion to voices and personalities that they've never met, never seen in person, right? This is a tendency that comes through the digital age, social media, major media, YouTube podcasts. We all, uh, we all have the tendency to consume so much and to, and to let those things reach a heart level from people that we don't even really know, and yet they still have become companion to us because they're feeding us something. Bizarre 
how Christians can so easily give themselves to radical, bizarre political views and, and worldviews and things, and they, just, and they just flow right with the people who they're, who they're chewing from, the people who are feeding them. Um, speaking specifically of the church and how this stuff enters the church, it's crazy how Christians are able to let their guards down and become companion to charismatic maybe, but often sleazy and arrogant and obnoxious and usually very wealthy pastors who all preach the same message. And it's not a message of repentance, sin, self-sacrifice. These are words you're never going to hear them hear or hear them say. But it's a message that convinces people that God is your most enthusiastic groupie. He's your biggest fan. He's your most willing benefactor for the most important person in the world, you. And that's a damning preaching. The digital age has made it way too easy for false teaching and self-worship to enter through the cracks. Cracks in the church, in the home, in the heart. And we become what we consume. And this is why it's so important to guard the heart. In Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23, it says to guard your heart above all else, for it is the source of life. Guard your heart above all else, it is the source of life. And Jesus continues on this idea, Mark chapter 7, verses 21 through 23. For from within, out of people's hearts, come evil thoughts, sexual immoralities, thefts, Murders, adulteries, greed, evil actions, deceit, self-indulgence, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All of these evil things come from within and defile a person. Interesting to note, by the way, on that, that it's for from within, out of people's hearts come evil thoughts. We always attribute thoughts to being from within as well, but what you consume in your heart bears weight in your mind. And Jesus says that you don't need it to play out in action before it becomes actual sin. It can be sin all up in here, which is why if you, he said if you think about adultery, you've, you've committed adultery. What you think can be sinful even if it has no weight, even if it doesn't play out in what you actually do. This is why it's so important to guard the hearts, to have your span blockers on, on high alert, the highest sensitivity setting. We've got to guard our hearts, okay? And the simplest way I know how to encourage us all in this is to simply is to simply say this, we have got to tie our lives to Jesus Christ. I mean, if you want to be wise, hang out with wise people. You want to be stupid, consume stupid things. You want to be angry, hang out with angry people and read angry things. If you want to be uh, smart, then, you know, take in, you know, highly intellectual things. If you want to be like Jesus, then take in more Jesus. It's really the same concept. Is Jesus Christ your deepest and closest, closest and most trusted companion? Because if he's not, we're vulnerable. And, I, and to extend on this, John 1 says that the word of God, right, the word of God took on form of flesh, right, that your relationship with this is your relationship with Jesus. It's not just part of it. It certainly is part of it, but, but it is intrinsically connected to your relationship with Jesus, which is why if you don't live by the word, if you don't read the word, if you don't consume the word, you don't have a relationship with Jesus, you might have been saved, but at this point in time, he's a friend who lives 3,000 miles away, and you just kind of track what he does on Facebook every once in a while. There's not companionship there. The Bible also says in Colossians chapter 1 that Jesus is the head of his body, which is the church. 
that what you are experiencing here and now, what you do with one another in your groups and as you serve in nursery and and as you have spiritual conversations with other spirit-filled people, that is your relationship with Jesus. That is how you feed your companionship with Jesus Christ because this is the body of Christ, which is why... For all of those people out here, there who, who don't need church to be a Christian, and it's like a give it or take it kind of situation, that is directly connected to your companionship with Jesus. And if you have no need for church, then you have no need for Jesus. It's all connected, according to the scriptures. So we must be consumed with Jesus, become more like Jesus by taking in all of the ways that he has extended himself to us through prayer and through his word and through the church. It is connected. We've got to card what comes into our hearts. And if we are not in regular, daily, honest, and deep companionship with Jesus Christ, then we are vulnerable to the crabs and the worms of false teaching and, and false teachers. The second thing I want us uh, to be encouraged by is, is this. I want us to all be encouraged to just avoid gullibility. Don't be spiritually gullible. And this is what he goes on to say here in verse 6. He says, For among them are those who worm their way into households and deceive gullible women, overwhelmed by sins and led astray by a variety of passions, always learning and never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. What a good statement. Always learning and never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. Has it not been the steady trend, by the way, throughout human history for men to be deceitful? To shrug on everything they've been created to be and to be deceitful and for women to bear the brunt of that, for women to be vulnerable to that and to bear the brunt of that. I mean, this is not surprising. We see it, of course, in relational terms, but it also comes to terms of truth and, and teaching. It's everywhere. And it's an outcome of sin that has ravaged humanity since the fall. And it always will because it's part of our sinful DNA. Even though there's hope in Jesus Christ, this will always be an issue. We are people created in desire. I mean, we are people uh, of desire by creation. This is something God has implanted in us. Ecclesiastes 3, it talks about how God has put eternity in the hearts of all people. And we have an innate desire for what only God can offer. This is why people give themselves uh, uh, addictively to anything that promises fulfillment. Because we all have this craving for what only God can give. And it has been terribly disrupted by the reality of sin. And so the desire that God has given us so that we may see him more often gets expended on lesser things. Our desire for affection, for health, for success, for influence, for prominence, all of these, if treated rightly, would probably point us back to our creator. But when desire becomes disconnected from God's intentions and design, that's when gullibility sets in. There is a connection between what we desire and our spiritual gullibility. And the more desperate we become in our desire, and the more disconnected that desire gets from God's design, the more likely we are to give ourselves to any lesser thing that appears even vaguely promising. And the same is true in our desire for truth. People who have such a longing for what is real and what is genuine that they will quickly give themselves to every teaching that loosely promises to be so. Listen, we cannot let passion and desire compromise our patient, diligent quest for truth. We cannot let our passion and desire upset that. 
Proverbs 19, verse 2 says, even zeal, which is a good passion, desire, word, even zeal is not good without knowledge. And the one who acts hastily sins. These women here, I would assume, had a desire that started out good. They had a passion for learning. When has that ever been bad? But it gets detrimental when your passion for learning gets to such a a status of open-mindedness that everything that you receive is received as truth. And when that happens, you cannot find truth. If everything is received as truth, then truth is nowhere to be found. It's like finding a needle in the haystack. How are you supposed to know? And as I said, I heard it said once before, people become so open-minded that their brains fall out. It's like they lose even their common sense. Anything that's spoken about as truth is received as truth, and the result is that you miss the actual truth, which is why it says in Proverbs 14, verse 15, the inexperienced one believes anything, but the sensible one watches his steps. And in Romans chapter 16, verse 18, talking about false prophets, it says, such people do not serve our Lord Jesus, but their own appetites. They deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting with smooth talk and flattering words. Which is why we have got to be people who are sensible. We have got to be people who are suspecting. Always on guard. So how do we keep our desires in check? Well, first, we've got to submit them to Jesus. Any desire that you have that is not regularly submitted to Jesus and prayed about and offered to him and in, inviting his input in is, has potential for idolatry. It has potential to just totally rob you and upset any, any quest for truth that you might be on. You've got to submit your desires to Christ, during which he will give you what you need to find satisfaction and fulfillment in Christ, which is why contentment is like one of the major New Testament principles. Because if you're not satisfied in who Jesus is and what he's done, then why wouldn't you give yourself to everything else all the time? We've got to be satisfied in the gospel, in the work of Jesus, in the person of Jesus. And in all of this, I think one just good practical help is this is something that you, are, you struggle with. You're always looking at what the next thing's going to be. You're always looking at the next thing to have or possess or, 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 or to take into your life. Your desire kind of dominates you. A good piece of advice is quit being so worried about what you're getting and start giving something. Generosity. You got money issues, start giving it away. You worship your, your wallet, start giving it away. If you have uh, uh, an issue in uh, just your own worship, you, you struggle worshiping other things. You give yourself so easily to, to other things. Look for every pathway you can to worship God, to give yourself to God, to serve his people, to extend yourself on behalf of God's purposes and design. This kind of generosity and giving of self does radical work, indirectly and directly, against the, the ploys of just kind of self-love and self-worship and, 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 and being led astray by your own desires. Start giving up of yourself in the right way instead of being so consumed about everything you're getting in the wrong way. We've got to close the cracks to spiritual vulnerability and keep our desires in check. And this spares us, wonderfully, this spares us of what inevitably com- becomes of those who resist truth and who, who preach non-truths. And we see an overt example of that here and these two men, J and J, right? Jonathan and Jambres. And so look with me at verse 8. It says, just as Jonathan and Jambres resisted Moses, so these also resist the truth. They are men 
who are corrupt in mind and worthless in regard to the faith, but they will not make further progress, for their foolishness will be clear to all, as was the foolishness of Jonas and Jambres. J and J, who are these guys? It's the only time their names are mentioned in the scriptures. And what most scholars think is that that the Apostle Paul is confirming the Jewish tradition that these two guys, Jonas and Jamris, are the guys who actually uh, were the magicians to the Pharaoh in Egypt who had that standoff with Moses and Aaron, right? When God told Moses and Aaron, go um, and, and let the Pharaoh know that I'm going to bring my people out and I'm going to use you guys. And you can even, here's a few little like tricks and miracles that you can use to confirm that. And so they go to Pharaoh and, and they are matched against these magicians, these sorcerers that worked for Pharaoh, who were able to duplicate some of the miracles that even they were doing. So let's just read about it. Exodus chapter 7, verses 10 through 13. It says, So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord had commanded. Aaron threw down his staff before the Pharaoh and his officials, and it became a serpent. But the Pharaoh called the wise men and sorcerers, the magicians of Egypt, and they also did the same thing by their occult practices. Each one threw down his staff, and it became a serpent. But Aaron's staff swallowed their staffs. However, Pharaoh's heart was hard, and he did not listen to them as the Lord had said. It actually continues. The standoff continues as these false sorcerers, magicians, were able to duplicate the next couple of plagues that Moses and Aaron did, turning water into wine. They were able to pull that off too. Or sorry, not turning water to wine, that was Jesus. Uh, uh, Turning water to blood. Not as great. Covering the land with frogs. They were able to pull that off too. Which is wild, right? Whatever these occult practices were that they were plugged into, it was powerful. It was strong. It was impactful. It fed the deceit. It perpetuated the hardness of heart of Pharaoh and probably others. But eventually it met its match because God is bigger, God is stronger, God is more powerful. And by plague four to six, somewhere in there, they're on their knees just like everyone else. Tradition actually says, Jewish tradition actually says that that these men actually vacated Egypt with the Israelites. And that they might have actually been instrumental in the whole golden calf ordeal. You remember that? Moses goes to Mount Sinai and... uh, gets the law, and during that time, people freak out, and they're like, what are we going to do? And so they build a golden calf and start worshiping it, right, filled with other bad things that, you know, you know should go unspoken. They, they did all of that. They just gave themselves completely to, to the lust of their flesh and the worship of this golden calf, and it is believed in their tradition that Jonas and Jambres were part of that deceit. And during that time, when, when God executed judgment upon the people who caused that, they were, they were judged as well, and they lost their lives in that event. Again, The example being people who, in the face of actual truth, decide to offer a cheap alternative. And eventually, that might go, that might get you through about, you know, two or three turns, but eventually, your power is going to be matched against God's power, and you're not going to stand. And you're going to be exposed for who you are. And that's what he says about people who resist truth. That's what the Apostle Paul says about those who resist truth. First of all, they are men who are corrupt in mind, he says in verse 8. Literally, spoiled rotten, spoiled to the core. That's what that word means. There's nothing good in there. What's coming outside might be okay, but what's going on in here, it's not good. Spoiled rotten. Not only that, it says that they are worthless in regard to the faith. What a terrible thing to be attributed to. And like, worthless in the faith. How would you like if somebody came up to you and said, you're worthless. Worthless in the faith. It's terrible, but that's 
that's these men. That's those who resist truth to such a level, especially when they're face-to-face -face with actual truth and they still resist. That word literally means disqualified, counterfeit. It's not real. And then not only that, but it says also in verse 9 that they will not make further progress and their foolishness will be clear to all. And this we pray God, praise God for, right? Though there is heartbreak always when people collapse in the faith, but it's really good when we see that foolishness exposed. And now, because of the digital age, nobody just kind of kind of falls, right? People are exposed in front of millions and millions of people. Everything that happens is to be viewed by millions and millions of people. And so the fall is big and the ripple effects are, are wide. Thank God, though, that no foolish teacher and no crabby person of deceit will ultimately get away with anything. At some point in time, they will be matched to God's power and they're going to be forced to the knee. At some point in time. There is a sanctifying tragedy even in our work, even in our world and in our church these days. As God is in the work of exposing many crabs who've creeped their way into the highest rankings of evangelicalism and are brought down in front of millions. You've heard their names. You've seen them all over the news. It happens what seems like constantly. Issues of political scheming and fraud and aggression and promiscuity and adultery and abuse and toxic cultures and personalities all within the church. Many of them didn't start bad, but at some point in time they made the trade. They traded love for God and for love of self. Recently, there's a three-part documentary released about probably the most popular international megachurch that has ever existed, which is Hillsong. I don't know if you've seen that or not. Weirdly, it was Mother's Day weekend, and we put the kids to bed, and we were trying to find something to watch. All my family was over at our house, and we ended up just watching the whole thing. So it's not typical Mother's Day material, but it's what we did, all three episodes. And man, it was like gripping, hard to hear, because it was just filled with testimonies of hurt person after hurt person after hurt person after hurt person, which is, by the way, going to happen whenever you treat a church like an organization. This is, this is in every organization ever. <laughs> Any multi-million dollar industry and business is going to have this stuff in it. I don't know why we separate. If we treat church like, like that, why that stuff's not going to come with it. If it's about money, then this is what comes with it. So it shouldn't have been surprising. But still, when you hear the heartbreak of people who were on a quest to know the Lord and they tied it to some personality or to some ministry and when that thing is exposed that their faith is hurt and that is hard to hear about. And I've wrestled with it myself. Maybe you have too. I mean, these kinds of things put everybody on edge. When faith leaders who are at that massive celebrity level, when they fall, it has, the ripple effect goes very, very far. Even myself, as someone who has valued the, the worship ministry of Hillsong for decades. I mean, our church just played a Hillsong song. <laughs> like we, most churches do, because they, they write good songs. My very favorite worship song was written by Hillsong Worship. The lyrics of that song, so powerful, so strong, and so meaningful. All of it written by a guy who doesn't even claim the faith anymore. What a weird thing. What a weird position to be put in, Right? And everybody's put in that position more and more that these faith leaders crumble in front of everybody. It puts people in this weird position. And maybe I used to wrestle with it. I don't wrestle with it as much anymore because God's just reminded me of a few things. And so I don't get lost in it as much as I, I used to. By the way, when has God ever done anything through using a person and, and, and that person was perfect or not sinful? Like when did that become surprising to us? 
As if like, whoa, I can't believe that this person's exposed as a sinner. I can't believe it. Like, like, why did we think that they were anything less than that? But it still hurts. But we still read Solomon, right? Ecclesiastes and Song of Solomon and Proverbs. We've quoted Proverbs a ton today. He's the one who wrote it. And the Bible seems to indicate that he kind of fell away from the faith. To a degree, anyways. We still read it, though. We still live by it. Why? Because God was at work. Right? Uh, we sang a, uh, a hymn earlier today. It's called... Um, it is well with my soul, written by Horatio Spafford, and many of us love this song, and we know the story behind it, right? Horatio Spafford went through tragedy that none of us can even fathom, lost his kids and like a boat wreck and a fire, and he, he, he hit like a financial crisis, and he lost all of this stuff, and it was in the pits of that agony that he penned the words, it is well with my soul. It's awesome. Now, we don't talk about the fact that his, his theology went completely bonkers in the end of his life right? He took, his, he took his, his existing church of 13 people and they went to try to start an American colony in the middle of Jerusalem to bring on the end times. Well, you don't talk about that part. Why not? Why do we still sing that song? Because the words are good. Because God was at work and everything is truly 100% consistent with this. And so we can still sing it. Because we don't worship Horatio Spafford. And we don't worship the chord progression. We worship God and it points us to God. So I used to wrestle with it. I don't as much anymore. And honestly, if you want to go down the, the rabbit hole of it, you're, every single thing is going to go back to some sinful author, leader, writer, musician, or somebody who either sinned their way out of it or they no longer claim the faith. It's a stressful way to live, by the way. I've tried that. It's fun for bored Christians to feel busy about the faith, to just nitpick every single thing, but it's exhausting. And ultimately, I don't think it's that necessary because the power of the gospel is greater than the sins of man. The power of the gospel is bigger, and I don't have the capacity to get lost in every motive and sin and angle behind every book and song and every ministry. So for me, if the words are in alignment with this, with the authority and truth of God's word, and if I remember that anyone who, who has ever done anything for the Lord was also a desperate sinner just like me, then I'm generally okay with whatever it is. You might disagree, and that's fine. But as I watched this Hillsong documentary, I had a few thoughts that pierced through all the others, thinking mainly as a pastor. And one was this. Even though the heartbreak is real, and it is, it is terrible to hear about these stories, Hillsong's going to be better off for it. When has any unit not been better off when God reveals the toxicity and cuts it out? Right? Even you and your own faith. Have you not been better whenever you allow God to gruesomely carve whatever it is in your life that shouldn't be there out. It's a good thing. Hillsong will be fine. They'll be smaller, but they'll be fine. Or at least whatever remnant is there that truly loves Jesus Christ. By the way, God can do so much more with the smaller numbers who truly love Jesus Christ than a room full of indifferent people. I'll take the smaller numbers with the deeper faith any day. The second thing that I kept feeling was this. It was that as love rises for the stage and for money and for influence, it seems to always be connected with a decreased care for any individual. And the passion for truth becomes theoretical more than practical. Talked about as important but not trusted as sufficient. What I mean by that is this, if truth needs backed with the exteriors of rhymy catchphrases and superhuman emotional hype and thousand dollar outfits and, and, and a raging six pack, 
then it's probably not truth worth believing in. And if it is, then the tendency is to follow the personality and not the actual truth that's being spoken. And this is why all of this to say it builds us to our last main point of this morning, that we must always be, false teaching or not, we must always be most impressed and wowed by truth. We have got to be always most impressed and most wowed by the truth of the gospel. Not any person, not any ministry, not any court progression, not any crabby deceit that is tapping on the windows, but mostly by the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. None of these things loved you like he loved you, and he saw your vulnerabilities and sinful tendencies, and he still died on your behalf to atone for those things. But he didn't just offer forgiveness, he also extends to us the righteousness of God. We are saved by grace. We are free from shame and guilt. We are free to live for a heavenly purpose and calling. We are free to see the world as God sees the world, equipped with the joy and peace of God that runs so much deeper than the pains of this world. That's enough. He's done enough. We don't need to dress it up. Jesus is enough. The word is enough. Truth is enough. And if you need all of the fancy exteriors to prove this to you, then something's probably off. At the same token, I understand that there is some merit to exteriors. I mean, it's a tough balance, isn't it? I mean, we're about to build a new building. And I know that when people, that that when you do this, it's already been told to us over and over again, that when you do things like this, it's going to draw in people, which is great, because I'm convinced that when they come here, they're going to be truly confronted with truth. We're not going to worship this new building. We're just going to use it as a tool to invite people to truth. And so I understand there is a place for exteriors. We want our guests to feel welcome. We want people to be accommodated. We don't want people to have to wait, you know, 13 hours to use the bathroom. We want our staff to take showers, to wear clothes. I get, like, there are base level hygiene and exteriors that, that we need. We want your kids to feel safe around here. There is exterior merit, but the exteriors are never, ever, ever to steal our love for truth, only to invite people to it. And my guess is, in this area, we all have a little growth to be had in this. Some of us have already fallen in this area before where we've tied our faith to everything exterior. Some of you are living a faith now um, that is tied to the exteriors, that if a person were to crumble, you'd crumble too. If a building were to crumble, you'd crumble too. But praise the name of Jesus Christ that as we attempt to grow and as we seek him for this kind of growth where we would always be wowed by truth more than any exterior, we want to grow in our affection for him and in obedience to his desires in our lives. And as we grow in this, the grace of his gospel covers us and we are so, so grateful for that, are we not? In any struggle, in any wrestling in your life, the gospel is there. We praise his name for this, and I pray we would always be more wowed, more impressed by him and his word of truth than any person, false or not, any person, any ministry, or any organization that claims to preach it. Amen? Let's pray. Father, may we always be more impressed, more wowed, more in awe of what you've done and who you are than any person who claims you, 
any ministry who claims you, anything that does anything in your name, may we be always most impressed with you and who you are and what you've done. Let there be nothing in FBN that would distract us from this. Let there be no exterior that we would fall in love with more than you. Father, would you give us all we need, the wisdom we need to resist spiritual gullibility and spiritual vulnerability. Help us close the cracks. Help us keep our desires in check. Help us navigate this balance of, of knowing how far is too far with the exteriors of our, of our setting and our context. Father, let us know your word and let us lean heavily and primarily into your word so that everything else is always exposed for what it truly is. Guard us, Father, from any deceit, from any preaching and teaching of self-love, for any home represented here today that's already abiding by some of these false teachings. I pray that today you would reveal that foolishness for what it is and that you would begin to do a wonderful work in redeeming and reviving your, your, your complete full truth in that home, in that setting, in that heart. Father, we entrust this work to you, and we ask now in this time of response that we would invite you to speak directly to us in each of our own unique experiences. All to the praise and glory of Jesus' name. Amen.